Hello and welcome to Switch Your Money On. I'm Susanna Streeter, the Head of Money and Markets here at Hargreaves Lansdowne. And I'm in the studio with Sarah Coles, the Head of Personal Finance. And Sarah, the nights have drawn in now. It's very bright in here, but it's dark outside. It seems like most of the day. And it has given me a bit of an urge for an autumn clean-out before we hunker down properly for the winter. And it's all ahead of a bit of building work I'm hoping we'll do in the spring. Yes, I think we probably need to do some building work for all the junk that we've accumulated. So um, maybe an extension, perhaps another garage. That should just about cover it. I mean, we've actually been planning some building work for a really long time now. And I'm constantly amazed at how many hoops you have to jump through. Plus, of course, there's a great joy of having to fund it as well. Absolutely. And it's not just happening at your house, Sarah. It's on a much bigger scale. Construction in the UK is moving at a snail's pace. The latest poll of purchasing managers at UK construction firms showed activity Activity dropped for the second consecutive month as new projects proved thin on the ground. House building fell particularly sharply in response to lower demand from buyers and higher borrowing costs thanks to interest rate rises. It means we've now had 11 consecutive months of falling house building. Yes, and look what happened with HS2. So that was scaled right back because it went so far over budget. And so infrastructure projects seem to cost a lot more here to pursue compared to other countries. And as a result, it seems the UK is falling behind the curve when it comes to investment in infrastructure, particularly when you compare Britain with other major economies around the world. So what are the prospects ahead for big infrastructure projects and what could it mean for companies operating in this sector? So that's what we're going to be delving in in this episode, which we're calling Deconstruction. I see what you did there. (laughs) We'll be talking to Kingsley Clark, Operations Lead at Southern Construction Frameworks. He has the task of making sure that Public money goes as far as possible when it comes to getting big things built. And he's very much the linchpin between contractors and local authorities. Welcome, Kingsley. It certainly seems as though you've got an an enviable task at times, given the current climate. Is that how you see it? Yeah, it's fair to say it could be uh, an absolute challenge, but I do love the challenge. And so, as you say, that role of connecting the public sector with uh, contractors and making sure the public money goes as far as it can do, uh, always a challenge, but one that I enjoy. Hopefully I can share some tips. That's great. Well, we look forward to digging into this a bit more later in the podcast, although that really should be the end of the construction fund. Sorry. <laughs> OK. We'll also chat to Sophie Lundyates about some of the listed companies operating in the sector. And we'll talk to HL's environmental, social and governance analyst, Laura Hoy, about some of the environmental and social considerations of building. And as usual, we'll hear from Emma Wall, our head of investment analysis and research, who's been looking at this from a funds perspective. But let's look first at where the UK stands right now when it comes to big infrastructure projects. So according to the Institute for Public Policy Research, the UK has seriously slipped down the Global Investment League. Yes, business investment is lower in the UK than in any other country in the G7 group of rich nations and 27th out of 30 OECD countries with data available ahead only of Poland, Luxembourg and Greece. So the report highlights a number of reasons for this, including a severe shortfall in public and private investment stretching back over several decades. The research also underlined that Britain had ranked below the G7 average for the last 18 years for spending not just on infrastructure, but also 
research and development, skills and training. So is Brexit partly to blame? Well, according to a report by the think tank UK in a Changing Europe, published in September, the UK hasn't been able to replace all the investment it used to get from the European Investment Bank. So the EIB has financed some of the most critical infrastructure projects in the UK over the 46 years that it operated in the UK, investing £146 billion into the country. So that's an average of £6 billion a year in real terms, over the course of that period. But following the referendum on EU membership, the UK lost access to EIB finance. Now, the UK did create or expand four development banks to try and replace this lost investment, but they've only been able to replace a third of it. And when you look at super important sectors like infrastructure, this is even lower. A little more than an eighth has been replaced. And what's become the main replacement for the EIB, the UK Infrastructure Bank? Well, that's not been able to reach its investment targets to date. So it's clear the UK is finding it harder to access funding. But what about projects that do get off the ground? Why have they run into such difficulties? Well, let's look at HS2, which has careered into difficulty, so much so that the second northern leg has been scrapped. So what went wrong? Well, it went seriously over budget. The leg between London and Birmingham, which is still going ahead, a stretch of 134 miles of track is forecast to cost, wait for it, £53 billion. And that's according to analysis by Remade. That works out at £396 million per mile, which will make it the most expensive of any completed above-ground railway project in the world. Eye-watering. And if you compare it to the French high-speed line from Tours to Bordeaux, which incidentally I've been on and loved, well, it's more than eight times the cost per mile of that stretch of track. Crossrail was also delayed by years, and that was billions of pounds over budget. Now, part of the reason is to do with our planning system. Under European systems, planning criteria are set out in advance more clearly, and it means projects are usually accepted with little prospect of major revisions. The UK planning system, rooted in common law, means the state has to gain approval, and it means effects need to be mitigated as the plans evolved. And the effect of this is that planning applications for infrastructure projects are often very long, requiring many hundreds of documents. We'll find out from Kingsley in a moment what this means in practice. But then, of course, there's the lack of skills. And I don't just mean the fight for labour that we've discussed a lot on this podcast, but the lack of skills in terms of those managing the projects. So a lack of internal knowledge within governments has been blamed for the need to outsource the design and construction phases of the project to private contractors, which can push up costs further. Whereas in many European countries, often initial designs are completed by engineers employed by the state, and then contracts are awarded. Then there's the problems posed by runaway inflation. Contractors may be working on contracts that were priced up before it took hold, so their margins are being devoured by inflation and rising prices, and we're going to see that in the projects being completed further down the line. So it's a toxic combination of reasons why budgets keep ballooning, making infrastructure projects more expensive. These drawbacks compared to Europe are not unique to the UK. So planning systems in the US have also come under criticism. However, the US has ploughed ahead nonetheless with a huge infrastructure stimulus known rather counterintuitively as the Inflation Reduction Act. So the goal is to reduce carbon emissions by 40% by 2030. But in the process, the White House says it will drive $500 billion worth of investment in the private sector, through projects focused on clean energy, conservation and green infrastructure. It'll invest in domestic energy production and manufacturing capacity, fuel developments in tech like carbon capture and green hydrogen. And crucially, it will reform the US planning system to get energy and transmission projects off the ground. 
the EU has responded to the Act with its own Green Deal Industrial Plan and Net Zero Industry Act. However, at this stage, we're still awaiting details on how the UK might step up its game in response. Meanwhile, the shadow Labour government has promised to revitalise the British economy and get Britain building again, partly by fast-tracking planning decisions and examining every major infrastructure project to try and speed things up. But it's not clear exactly how that will be achieved. Well, let's speak to Kingsley Clark, who is knee-deep in these types of projects all the time. So, Kingsley, how easy will it be to speed things up? The sad reality is, if they're on site or we're hearing about them in the news uh, from an active perspective, probably not at all. And it comes back to going straight back to the beginning at project inception and speeding those along rather than trying to work with what we've already got in the system. So you talk about the problems right at the start. What actually are those problems in the sort of planning process? You kind of touched on a few. The the system in the UK is very different to what we see, say, on the continent, where consultants, contractors, the state all work together to bring a project to fruition. Over in the UK, we tend to work in silos, particularly with designers putting together plans for review by a planner who will then come back to them. And it becomes a rather staged process that just takes a lot of time. And unfortunately as well, we often don't bring the contractor to that table until far down the process. So the thought of how we're actually going to build something on the ground is just left to be dealt with once planning is approved, often with conditions that aren't achievable for the contractors. And to what extent is the planning system to blame for cost overruns? And how could it be improved? The planning system is an easy one to blame for all of our woes because at the moment it's struggling under pressure of demand. Um, local authorities we're seeing across the piece are struggling with finances and planning is obviously a key part of that. And there's a skill shortage in planning, so it's easy to blame everything onto planning. Part of the problem is, though, is we we don't embrace the process properly. We're not including, as I say, consultants and contractors early on to develop a plan that planners can approve once and so instead we develop a plan we bring in a contractor we have to change the plan which requires more capacity from the planning authorities and more for us to then tie them up with rather than approving the new things so yes it can be slow and cumbersome at times but ultimately they are something that we can work with if we engage properly particularly with consultants and contractors to collaboratively work a project together. So do you think then that there is a way to make the state and the private sector work better together? And and what what way is that? (laughs) Uh, Yeah, I think it's probably fair to say in any industry ever, you could always get the private sector and the state working together in construction. Clearly, that's quite acute at the moment. And one of the biggest problems we have is uh, the acceptance that our private sector companies delivering projects need to operate and have a reasonable level of overhead and profit. We in the public sector like to pass risk down the supply chain. So inflation being the great example, we like the private contractors to hold that inflation risk. Inevitably, they will, but they'll charge for it. But then that risk will continue to be passed down the supply chain to, frankly, those who aren't best placed to have it. So if we want to work better, we need more grown-up conversations about the allocation of risk and more realistic expectations on what overhead and profit would look like. There's so many headlines and so many big projects out there that are released and overheads and profits are at 2-3% when that just is not enough for a construction company to operate. So if you could wave a magic wand and solve the UK's building problems, what would that look like? 
It would look like everybody around a table at the beginning of the idea, not once it's been designed, not once we'd already worked out how to do that. And that would include your planners, the public sector bodies who are specifying based on outputs, not on exactly what is going to happen. All too often we see tenders with, this is the exact route of the line, it's going to go down this area. We don't bring the private contractors in to help us use their innovation and to help us improve the offer to deliver the same outcomes, but often for much less money. So kind of moving slightly more into, you know, things are happening right now. I wanted to talk a little bit about the cancellation of of that leg of HS2. So how much damage does something like that do? It's interesting, isn't it? I would say in, in terms of the construction industry and what we're doing, it's probably not done as much damage as we're all considering. We have a skill shortage in construction and construction is turning over hundreds of billions a year. So whilst it's got a huge headline grabbing impact, the impact to construction is probably lesser. Those skills can easily be uh, reallocated to all of the other projects that are crying out for skills and labour within the construction industry. So from that perspective, maybe not at all. But you've touched on kind of the investment risks and the companies wanting to come to the UK and deliver these huge infrastructure projects. Clearly, that is going to make a difference and people are going to look at that as uh, a yardstick about whether or not the UK is serious about delivering on the big projects that are out there. And then will that have an extra impact on the risk that they're willing to take and will that mean that actually they'll push up um, what they're willing to pay uh, for coming into that project? Very likely. Ultimately, that is what the the contractors are doing when they bid or look at any project. Probably 100% of the contracts awarded, the contractors are making money during construction, not in the stages of planning and etc. before. So delays like this, problems like this make contractors need to consider how they recover money during a pre-construction phase before the boots are on the ground and the shovels are in the ground. That's only going to drive up prices for us all. And do you think it'll have an effect on whether those transport projects come to fruition at all? Quite possibly. Inevitably, contractors are going to be looking at that very carefully. But at the end of the day, if the drive becomes there, and if the drive from the public sector, the state is there to make these projects happen, the private sector will come to the table because, let's be frank, they want to deliver those projects. But they're going to be coming to the table with a slightly more cautious approach. Maybe it will actually inject some more early realism into what the cost should be. So rather than having a debate and we look at HS2 where much of the properties, for example, have already been bought before and now the project has been cancelled, what what happens to those properties down the route? It's going to bring to a head, hopefully, a reality of what, what things will cost before we go too far down and expend too much money. Maybe there'll be a benefit. And now you talked about this real need to get everybody around the table right from the beginning. Who's responsible for driving that change? Is it central government or local authorities as well? I think everyone has to take their role in it. I mean, clearly with a project like HS2, it's going to be central government. It's a huge project cutting across lots of different local authorities. But we see it all of the time with local authorities commissioning highways projects, commissioning new schools, all of those projects there needs to be a groundswell. And so everybody, every client shares that responsibility to bring all of the parties to the table sooner. You talked about your own kind of extensions and such like. When we consider those, nine times out of 10, the first call we make is to a contractor, not to an architect, not to a consultant, not to the planner. But in the professional world, 
we're doing it the opposite way around. And that's the bit that needs to change. Seems hard to, to talk about this right now, given all that you've said and how we've looked at all the problems. But where do you think the real opportunities are right now, particularly in the UK? Well, I suppose one opportunity with the the news with HS2, clearly there's a lot of skills there. Let's keep those skills in construction and let's move them to help us increase the pace of all of the other projects out there. So that's a good opportunity for us. Government recently published the construction playbook. It's a follow-on from Egan and Latham's reports. It's another roadmap for what we can do better. So collaboration, let's get talking. There's lots of routes out there where the public sector can engage early with contractors and we just need to seize that opportunity, particularly while the skills are perhaps more prevalent at the moment with HS2 not continuing in the way we expected. Okay, Kingsley, thank you so much. Be really interesting to see what the future holds in store, whether that playbook will be read and acted on and whether the UK can get to grips with some of these thornier infrastructure issues. Thanks so much. Thank you. So let's bring in Sophie Lund-Yates now to explore some of the listed companies that might be interesting here. And Sophie, you've been looking at Balfour Beatty, haven't you? Pretty topical focus here, given what we've been discussing. Hi, Susanna. I have indeed. Balfour Beatty is one of the companies involved in HS2. The group is a construction and support services giant that deals with major projects, largely civil, um, including things like transportation and energy infrastructure. So how will the changes to HS2 affect Balfour Beatty? The reining in of projects isn't great news for anyone hoping to bid and win contracts, but this project isn't the only thing on Balfour's books. It has an extensive order book of around £16 billion. There are other challenges swirling that don't purely centre on HS2. As much as the order book's still sizeable, it has shrunk. There's a lot of economic uncertainty and that's causing some US commercial customers to delay contracts. When the economy shrinks or things look unsteady, you know, people are far more likely to hit pause on big spending. And this nervousness is partly why the group's valuation has seen a 19% knock in their first half. There are absolutely still strengths. You know, the group offers essential services, but margins are challenging in this arena. A particular area of positivity is demand for hospitality and aviation products over in the US. But of course, as I've alluded to, with a company like this, ups and downs are par for the course. So that is something to remember. Rumour has it you've also been looking at a well-known name in the infrastructure arena too. None other than JCB. What can you tell us? It had to be done. I've had the JCB song stuck in my head for days. That's um, not even a lie, unfortunately. The price we pay for this podcast. But in all seriousness, though, you've already touched on one of the core elements of JCB, and that's its brand. Large-scale construction or agriculture calls for machinery that can be trusted, both from a safety and quality perspective. Unfortunately, I won't go into too much detail as JCB remains family-owned and it's not a listed company. So for anyone wondering why we're doing an infrastructure episode and not talking about the famous yellow diggers, that's why. Thanks, Sophie. So who have you dug into instead? Sorry, sorry, I promised no more puns. That's all right, we'll forgive you. So Ashted um, are a UK-listed construction giant. They're more involved in the rental of equipment for the kit needed for large infrastructure. Markets were perhaps a little spooked by UK guidance, which was moved down. But North America is the real growth driver. And with group expectations intact, we aren't too concerned. 
The medium term looks promising as the ongoing expansion into North America starts to yield results. Both the US and Canadian divisions benefited from higher rates and volumes. There are several growth drivers in the region, from the onshoring of supply chains to government legislation looking to expand infrastructure and chip manufacturing. Ashton's scale and expertise should place it well to be a key supplier for large-scale projects. The bigger players often have an advantage in the fragmented industry and the balance sheets being flexed to snap up smaller players in the space. We're also supportive of the rental model, which allows customers greater flexibility and helps to counter ongoing supply chain issues. The proportion of equipment owned by rental companies has increased dramatically. And last we heard, Ashted believes the 55% seen in the US has room to grow. We're inclined to agree when you consider that the rental proportion of equipment in the UK is at 75%. Debt has risen as investment in expansion continues, but the balance sheet is in reasonable health and means the group can invest to meet the extra demand, opening new stores, expanding its rental fleet and pursuing its strategy of Bolton acquisitions where appropriate too. What about the risks here? As I've mentioned, construction is inherently cyclical, so companies in the sector are somewhat at the mercy of economic activity. So overall, there are several structural tailwinds blowing in Ashton's favour and its scale puts it in a better position than some. But there are likely going to be some wobbles along the way. Thanks, Sophie. And what's the final name? I'll keep this brief as it's a name that's cropped up before on previous episodes, but Caterpillar needs to be talked about in the context of infrastructure. So it provides seriously heavy duty kit, including the types of machines that are used by miners to get raw materials out the earth. Um, We've recently had results from the company and that showed third quarter revenue of $16.8 billion, up 12%. Growth was largely driven by higher prices with higher volumes providing a smaller boost. Now, the three core segments within machinery, energy and transportation all helped contribute to growth. Operating profit rose 42% to $3.5 billion as the vast majority of the revenue uplift from higher prices and volumes fed through to profit. Fourth quarter sales are expected to be slightly higher than last year, while margins are expected to tick a little bit lower quarter on quarter. So MENT free cash flow is expected to exceed the four to eight billion dollar range for the full year. Now, the market will remain sensitive to changes and expectations for demand. So that is the element to monitor. Thanks, Sophie. It's definitely going to be an interesting time for all sorts of businesses in this area. But of course, anyone involved in infrastructure building also needs to consider the environmental and social challenges as well. So let's bring in Laura Hoy here. Laura, this is a big area for ESG, isn't it? Hey, thanks for having me. You're absolutely right. Infrastructure is one of those pockets of the economy that really sparks a debate around how to weigh up the environmental costs against the need for growth. So what are the main environmental risks? When we think about infrastructure and construction, cement is really at the top of our minds. It's a huge contributor to global emissions, responsible for around 8% of the world's CO2 emissions. To put that into perspective, that's more than the aviation industry. Is there a way around this, Laura? I mean, it's hard to imagine that growth in infrastructure doesn't come with growth in cement usage. Yeah, you're absolutely right. We are very dependent on cement. It's necessary for roads, bridges, buildings, and everything in between. There are some ways that companies making and using cement can lower their impact. Clinker, which is a commonly used binding agent in cement, is extremely carbon intensive because of the energy required to heat it and the carbon released by the limestone when it's hot. 
But there are ways to tweak this process and make it less harmful. For example, using carbon neutral energy to power the process. There's also an argument for reducing demand on clinker overall. Some companies are looking at substituting it with waste materials like coal ash. So if substitution's an option, why isn't everyone doing that? It sounds like a win-win. You know, it's worth exploring, and there are many companies out there working on just that, from replacing clinker with alternatives to using lower carbon versions. But given that cement is such a critical resource, we have to be careful not to rush into anything. While environmental concerns loom heavy, construction and materials companies have to balance these off against the social risks. Product quality is so important because cement goes on to be used in bridges and buildings, and that needs to be safe. Yes, I suppose we're now seeing the consequences of inadequate safety research around the UK as schools with shoddy concrete are are being forced to close. Exactly. The concrete used in the schools you're talking about was chosen because it was a cheaper alternative. At the time, it was deemed safe, but years later, we're seeing that some weaknesses were unfortunately overlooked. That's something materials makers want to avoid as they look to develop carbon-friendly versions of cement. The good news is that preliminary research suggests that 30 to 40 percent of clinker used in the cement industry could be replaced without compromising the cement strength. So while there's no easy net zero solution, we can start making small adjustments that put us on the right path. So if you're wanting to make sure your investments are prepared for a lower carbon economy in the future, what should you be looking for? The main thing to consider is whether or not they have clear, defined net zero commitments in place. Companies that make clinker will have to consider all of the issues that we've just spoken about, but many companies buy the stuff so it wouldn't be included in their direct emissions. In those cases, it's really important that indirect emissions are also included in their targets. That means they'll be seeking out suppliers who are taking steps to reduce their carbon footprint. Thanks, Laura. This is clearly a key issue when thinking about infrastructure firms, isn't it? But what about funds? Well, let's bring in Emma Wall, our Head of Investment Analysis and Research. She's been speaking to Peter Meany, Manager of the First Centia Global Listed Infrastructure Fund. Hi, Pete. Hi, Emma. So you were one of the first guests on this podcast series when we kicked off nearly two years ago. At the time, we talked about infrastructure. We're going to talk about infrastructure again. However, the macroeconomic environment is pretty different. Before we dig into the impact of inflation and interest rates on the asset class, just broadly, can you give us an overview of why you'd invest in listed infrastructure? What does it bring to a portfolio? What I like about infrastructure is is the tangible nature of what we invest in. These are assets that people use every day, Uh, electricity, water, gas utilities, toll roads, airports. Maybe you're traveling through them now uh, while you're listening to this podcast. Relatively simple to understand how these companies make money. And I think that's important for investors in a pretty complex world. Secondly, I think there's a good source of income. What we like beyond uh, that, say, you know, income or bond is the long-term structural growth drivers. Uh, infrastructure is about solving some of the world's long-term challenges, uh, decarbonisation of uh, energy uh, through investment in renewables and transmission and batteries to, to support that. Uh, resolving urban congestion with uh, more roads and uh, railroads to move people and goods more efficiently around the country. And I think also, you know, digital communications, um, making sure that, that 5G is available uh, for people to use wherever they are. 
and the the data centres that support not only that use of data, uh, but also evolving things like you know artificial in- intelligence. You know, it's an exciting combination of simple things to understand, a good source of income and long-term growth. Income with infrastructure has often been seen as an alternative source of income to your typical equities or bonds. And therefore, it has been a popular addition to portfolios for diversification. But all income assets have been flipped around a bit, shall we say, by rapidly rising inflation over the last year. And then inflation beginning to come off, but interest rates coming up. And so we've seen it amongst our own clients, this sort of rush to cash. What has that done to both demand for the sector, listed infrastructure for you, but also presumably this has created quite a few value opportunities for you? Yeah, it's been a really interesting dynamic, you know, the last two years. 2022 was an excellent year for infrastructure. So in sterling terms, you were seeing a positive 5 or 10% return from the asset class in a market, you know, global equities market, down 5 or 10%. And one of the key reasons for that was the inflation hedge. As inflation picked up from you know, 1 or 2% uh, to 8 or 10% in many parts of the world, you know, that is, on balance, a benefit for infrastructure. Uh, the vast majority of our companies, 70 to 90% of a typical infrastructure portfolio, would have the ability to pass that through, say, a contracted toll road where uh, prices go up uh, by CPI on, say, you know, the 1st of February each year, or a regulated utility, UK water utility, where they earn a, a real return on capital plus pass-through inflation. So there are many examples we saw of that ability to push through inflation, and that drove a very positive return profile in 2022. What happened in 23 was exactly as you pointed out, that inflation started to roll over. So we we lost that positive uh, hedge story. And then a real push up in interest rates started to occur. So it's that rise in real interest rates that does impact the valuation of infrastructure companies. And um, while I think the the move in, say, the US 10-year bond yield from 2 to 3 to 4% was largely anticipated by the market and, and by us. Uh, you know, the scare that we could go to five or even six, you know, certainly impacted uh, in valuations of uh, some of these more bond yield sensitive sectors uh, like infrastructure. So 2023 has been more difficult, but that's presented a, a very uh, interesting valuation level for us as we stand today. Now, Pete, nothing is guaranteed. But from here, if you look at the yield curve, for example, it's indicative that rates stay higher for longer, but then they do start to come down. It is expected by sort of this time next year. For you, what is your outlook then for listed infrastructure with that kind of expectation of higher for a bit longer, but then rates start to come off? Yeah, that's a a really exciting environment for, for infrastructure if we get a period where interest rates do come off uh, from 5 back to towards 4%, for example. Inflation stays stubbornly high in that sort of 3 to 4% range. You're right, we don't know what the future holds, uh, particularly in the very short term. Uh, but I think on a medium to long term view, we've got higher income than normal. 
Uh, we've also got higher growth than normal because of this significant investment, for example, in decarbonisation. We've seen some of our utilities push up growth from 2 to 4 to 6 or even 8%. So more growth, more income and valuation levels lower than normal. Pete, thank you very much. Thanks for your time, Emma. And that was Emma Wall speaking to Peter Meany, manager of the First Centia Global Listed Infrastructure Fund. Now, please bear in mind that these are the views of the fund manager and are not individual stock recommendations. You're listening to Switch Your Money On from Hargreaves Lansdowne. And now to end this episode, we have a quick stat of the week. So the Royal Institution of Chartered Surveyors puts together construction activity index by country. In its report for the third quarter of this year, the top five in reverse order were the UAE in fifth place, then Mauritius, then the Philippines, and in second place, it was India. So, Sarah, can you guess who was first? Ooh, oh, I'm not sure. I mean, I, I suppose given all the talk about that Inflation Reduction Act, I should say the US, but, you know, I just know I'm going to be wrong. You are, I'm afraid. You are wrong. The US came in ninth, just ahead of Ireland. The answer was Saudi Arabia. And in case you're wondering, the UK had a negative reading, along with much of Europe, including France and Germany. I suppose all this starting to make me feel a little bit better about how long it's taken for us to do a bit of work in our house. Although, given how the dormer shakes in the wind, I'm not sure it ought to wait much longer. Yes, I'm actually looking forward to getting stuck in next year, although it'll probably be 2025 by the time we get round to it. Well, that's all from us for this time. But before we go, we do need to remind you that this was recorded on November the 13th, 2023, and all information was correct at the time of recording. Nothing in this podcast is personal advice. You should seek advice if you're not sure what's right for you. Investments rise and fall in value so you could get back less than you invest, and past performance is not a guide to the future. Yes, this is not advice or a recommendation to buy, sell or hold any investment. No view is given on the present or future value or price of any investment, and investors should form their own view on any proposed investment. And this hasn't been prepared in accordance with legal requirements designed to promote the independence of investment research and is considered a marketing communication. Non-independent research is not subject to FCA rules prohibiting dealing ahead of research. However, HL has put controls in place, including dealing restrictions, physical and information barriers, to manage potential conflicts of interest presented by such dealing. You can see our full non-independent research disclosure on our website for more information. So all that's left is for me to thank our guests, Kingsley, Sophie, Emma, Peter, and our producer, Elizabeth Hodson. Thank you so much for listening. We'll be back again soon. Goodbye. <laughs>